I'm Damon Williams. Welcome to Malik Eternal, an emergent series on grief practices, ancestral reverence, and community building in honor of Malik Jabril Aleem, who transitioned into this world December 13th, 1992, and transitioned from this world August 20th, 2021. Conversations you're about to hear take place in the context of new traditions being built to celebrate his life and commemorate his transitions. Some of it was held at the Malikaline Studios at the Breathing Room Space, while others took place at the Petite Colleges at Fox Lake. This is for his children and all who knew and loved him. But for those who never met Malik or never knew him, we hope that Malik's spirit can be a vessel for other containers and practices in collective grief which we all need. This first offering has been recorded in the first two years since his transition, and you will hear from his life partner, comrades, collaborators, and chosen family. So here we go. As I say it, you come in after. I day, I Nicodem. check in it would be good for folks to say their name any ways you would like to identify define yourself so whether that's role position title if you want to name any relationship to Malik that is invited or welcomed but that does not have to be defined either I love that question you want to start us off no (laughs) (laughs) all right I will <laughs> I will kick it off. Hey, it's, it's Damon here. Malik was my brother in family and struggle and community. Um, and now I will pass it to my left. <laughs> uh, my name is Faye. I am Christiana's godmother, Malik's godmother-in-law <laughs> Ori's grand godmother and his mama Faye hello um, I'm Miranda dear friend of the Lean Cologne clan peace love um, my name is Iman Loren she they interchangeably artist educator hood womanist I'm a longtime lover artistic supporter and dear community uh, comrade of Malik and of the Let Us Breathe Collective, and I'm very honored and happy to be sharing space with you all. Peace, y'all. My name is Trina T. I am a community member, South Shore resident, 
when you say a hood womanist, I have a dream and vision of being like a hood data scientist. Like I'm mm. like, I want us to leverage our data, but that's another story. <laughs> um, I am a friend of Malik's. I am Christiana. I am Malik's life partner, lover, co-parent, collaborator. Ashe. So as we we jump into this conversation and, and make record of where we are in this time, I invited folks who were here early with a little prompt to maybe think of two memories they have of, of Malik, no matter how big or seemingly mundane. If you have a memory of Malik Aleem that, that comes to mind that, that you would like to share. You want to start us off with? Oh, man. I mean, you know, my, my life is such a wealth of memories with Malik, you know, down to the very minutia of our domestic life. But I think one that I'll offer up just because it was like a small, intimate one, just like maybe a couple weeks before his transition. Um, we spent our last several weekends together doing just like hella fun shit with the kids, which was such a gift, you know, in the aftermath. Um, and one of those was a trip to the Chicago Botanical Gardens. And we had gone before and like paid to get in and then realized that if you bike in, you don't have to pay. So we put the bikes in the car and drove and like parked at a forest preserve nearby to then put the kids in the like little carriage and pull them with our bikes and bike in. And as we were unloading the cars and setting up the bikes, um, we just had like a little Afrobeat dance party in the parking lot of the Forest Preserve right outside the Chicago Botanical Gardens. Um, and it was just so goofy and the kids were just so joyful and he was so joyful. That moment is, is one that like, when I think of Malik's fatherhood and relationship to family, and our relationship to just like having fun and bringing pleasure and joy into small mundane moments. Um, you know, like just seeing him dancing outside of my car is a visual that still makes me smile. Mm -hmm. I, sh I struggle with like a dis distinct moment. I'm thinking of two different dynamics. And so the first one that comes is like this relationship he had to work he was very much like a workhorse, always had a project, but then also like had this like kind of adorable relationship to like getting overwhelmed <laughs> by things. So like, for example, like we're doing an outside event across the street here from Breathe the Room and like the the lot, it's an abandoned lot. And he's just like, yeah, I, I'll mow it. <laughs> and so he like spends two days like hacking away at this line. Did he get bit by a thing or something? Or am I complaining that? Um, <laughs> or like, you know, always just, you know, building something, doing something with his hands, learning how to do it. Or um, he was spending time with his brother. I think his brother was like trying to get in shape. And so he like, <laughs> was like, all right, bet yeah, I'll come work out with you. And I guess he like went like, super hard and you might remember like the the medical condition but he basically like don't remember the name of the condition but yes he put himself in the hospital <laughs> overdoing it at the gym because oh. his muscles were releasing toxins so fast that his yeah. liver couldn't process yeah. it <laughs> and so like i'm laughing at it it sounds not funny oh, <laughs> for three days <laughs> oh my goodness 
Did you ever work out with Rafi? <laughs> no, Rafi's super swole. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but I think like that's kind of like a, a metaphor of, you know, he, he had this willingness to like test his limits, push his limits, and yeah. especially like when it was an offer or in collaboration, he was like, yeah, I, you know, I don't know how to make offense, but I got Nima and kids running around, so I'll be like... And YouTube. And I'm gonna, YouTube yeah, it. I'm gonna make a little, like, makeshift little gateway that's over here on the side, and, like, maybe he got a splinter doing it, right? Like, it's, it's that, that balance, so um, that is a memory that, that I, I think of. The first one that comes to mind is my first time ever eating two fish was with Malik <laughs> in the dining room of my on Vincennes at my sister house. And it was so good. And I had not even known two fish existed. Mm. It was right down the street. And so that's my memory that I would lift up. <laughs> um, so off of the food memory, I will say I think it's the Popeye's chicken sandwich. <laughs> because <laughs> when the chicken sandwich came out, I remember him coming over to my house and being like, you have to try this sandwich. <laughs> and I was like, why? And he, because this, it was, this was before the craze, right? And I was like, what? Okay, like, I'm down. But he was like, no, this shit is fire. And so he was just raving about that. And I did. I tried it before the craze. It was very good. It was just so funny to me. He would just talk about it, like, every day. And I'd be like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to. And then, yeah, I did. I got a little obsessed. So thank you. Thank you. A memory I have of Malik is the re-up episode. Um, he asked me to be a guest, and it was fucking awesome. I ain't gonna even hold you. He pulled up on his bike and hopped off real swift, <laughs> swifter as I've ever seen anybody get off a bike, and he had this big-ass tub of lemonade, and he was like, it's gin in here. <laughs> I was like, bet. <laughs> like, Let's do this fucking podcast episode. Malik really inspired me with podcasting and showed me, like, just really, like, the, the quick ropes, the quickest ropes that I could, like, learn about um, what it looks like to help hold a conversation down and also the intention of, like, having a guest and... He really gave me some light and shine, especially in the at the height of my trajectory. So that's a really good memory I have with Malik. Well, everybody's talking about food. So my memory is of Malik at the stove and at the counter at his house, chopping and dicing and making food from scratch for his family, which included his dog. Um, he made special meals for her. And um, I know one time I got there and there were sweet potato fries. And I'm like, oh man, I want some, but I wasn't gonna ask. And he said, there, those are yours. And I said, really, you made some for me? <laughs> they were so good, but he had cut them so they were so uniform and they looked mm -hmm. like real French fries. Oh, and they were so delicious. <laughs> Malik worked from home because we were in pandemic, so I saw him almost every day. And we would have conversations. I mean, a lot of time they would focus on the kids, practical matters, but other things too. And um, I remember one time asking him, tell me about abolition and how it would look in the world in the real world and so he's telling me and he was grateful for the question and was excited to talk about it 
and I would ask questions and he would follow up on that. And it was just helpful for me because, you know, I would hear general terms and big ideas. But what I wanted to know is every day, how would that look? And how do you know that the people who are chosen to be in certain positions don't come up with the same kind of thing that we're getting rid of. And he was all in for that conversation. He was excited to have, because I said, I'm sorry to take you away from you. It's like, no, no, I like talking about this. And I was grateful for it. I appreciated that about him very, very much. I still remember where we were standing in the house when we were having that conversation. And it impacted me quite a bit. I'll choose my birthday. There was, uh, I turned 29, no, 28. Oh my goodness. And I had a party in the Washington Park parking lot. And people had like spray paint and there was food and there was an ancestor table and people were jumping rope. And I have a couple key memories. I'm, I'm sure Malik was spray painting on the parking lot grounds. There's a memory of him there, as well as a memory of him jumping rope with others. There was like a, a little crew of people, of black men jumping single. And I saw was, a video of that. Yeah. Yes, oh, yeah, that was yeah. a powerful, I'm very grateful for that food. And cause like, was he on the grill too? Who was on the grill that day? I don't remember, but he was, he was good. Malika always hop in on the grill always. if some grilling yeah. needed to be done. Yeah. Yes, and so, <laughs> so thank you for that. Thank you for that memory. <laughs> I have so many memories of you, uh, <laughs> which I'm thankful for. I just, to choose from is hard. I think about one day I was over there and Ori was like walking around in his Black Panther suit. <laughs> and you were writing for the shy. You were like out writing. I went over there to watch Ori for like a little bit. I was like going in and out of the kitchen and he was like at the desk and I could hear him like talking to this uh, this man that he worked with. Um, and just like them sharing stories and you could tell how intently he was like listening to him and how it really felt like the, I could tell that man felt like Malik gave him space, like to be who he was, to share his story. And he wasn't judging him and he was just like seeing him. And that's one of my favorite things about Malik is that like you, you saw everyone and you see everyone. And you didn't come with like a, a judgmental sense. It was like, a, like, I just, I see you, like, I get it. I went back into the kitchen when he was getting off the phone. And I remember him just being like, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you so, like, have a great day. You could just tell though it like warmed his heart. And they were talking about him, him being previously incarcerated um, and just like his life, like post being previously incarcerated. And it was just so beautiful to see him like in his work. Um, I, I, I feel like I got to see a lot of sides of him, but I didn't always get to see him working, like in his work. So to see him in that mode and to see him like changing this man's like mind and life, it was, it just meant a lot. You could tell, he got off the phone, he was like crying and I was like, are you good? He was like, yeah, it was just our conversation. And I just loved how he could have that with him. Malik was with the shits. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there was a picnic, the South Shore Rainbow Beach picnic, right? Oh. It was this fuck nigga. <laughs> 
And, you know, I had came to Chris. I was like, hey, Chris, like, you know, I, I, I understand the lens. I noticed this lens. I participate in the lens. <laughs> the lens but, being abolition. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, you know, I, I, I got no brothers, no siblings. So it's like mm. I've had to, like, go about ways of protecting myself that involve police. But I didn't want to induce that to the space because this person shouldn't have been in the space with me. And I don't know what was said or what words was passed to Malik, but it was just very like a say less. And just like, you know, moved around and just seeing all the men in that space protect me and being in conversations about what a geographical pod could look like. Just like being in the access of like, okay, I understand like fuck 12 may have like dampened how a lot of black women choose to protect themselves. Right. But what is like the other side of that and being a part of that conversation in full was very mesmerizing to me. I've never seen black men step up in that way to protect me, to protect black women. I felt seen. I felt seen. I always felt seen by Malik. And it was really encouraging. It's something I really do carry with me a lot. Yeah, just off of uh, Malik being with the shits and not being afraid to escalate I was just like, Malik, no, you can't spray paint. Fuck Lori Lightfoot oh, on the Michigan I've Avenue. Missed, I missed the honorable mention <laughs> of just being silly. Oh. We were packing up your Logan Square apartment and you had like all of these like miscellaneous papers or things that like were going to get thrown away. Yes. And just in the middle of the alley, he's like, well, if we set on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so like in the middle of the alley, there was just like this bonfire and then like people, the like landlord company people got really they, upset yeah, and did. had a big problem that that like that happened. Yes. All of, all of the mail that I don't open uh, became a bonfire <laughs> in my alley. But yes, you know. And we act the, like we didn't know who, who no, did who it. Who was? Who's no the, idea. Yeah. Um, but yes, um, like in the like height of downtown is a military zone. Mm-hmm. Like on the Magnificent Mile, spray painting, fuck Glory Lightfoot, next to a donut shop, and then like wanting to go get ice cream From right next donut. door. I was like, look, okay, fine, you did the thing. Like, hopefully nobody caught that on camera, but we're not about to stop to get ice cream. We have to at least keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> but aside from that, you know, Malik taught me how to give birth. Mm-hmm. Malik caught both of his children in the birthing pool and just as we are in the month of December and approaching the birthdays of both Yari and Ori one of you know the countless cherished memories of Malik that I have is being my birth partner and being in the birthing pool with me for my 56 hour labor and he was super sick during the time that I was giving birth. And so he took like maybe like a six hour break from being in the water with me um, so that he could have the endurance to keep going because it was a long time. (laughs) But other than that, you know, he was like by my side in the birthing pool for for a day and a half and there to like unravel the umbilical cord from around Ori's neck and chest um, in the immediate, you know, the first moments of his life. And yeah, I mean, I I don't know of anyone else who has done anything like that. Uh, This 
journey of like black maternal health and organizing around that um, and educating myself around that was was something that this young man inspired. And so, yeah, Malik in the the birthing water. Uh, and I, I spoke to this at his memorial, but connecting th- that water experience with him, um, that one of birth to his transition and him being in water birthed into his uh, ancestral life just feels very important to the completion of his existence. We, we are having this conversation leading up to Malik Eternal as we're going to be celebrating his 30th birthday. And by my account, in the 16 months since the funeral, this will be the fifth formal gathering in his honor. And so I just want to offer folks to, one, reflect on anything you've seen or learned from that practice collectively or specifically, whether it be for folks who were able to make it to the cabin, who were at his birthday last year, who were at either of the events in the garden. Um, What have you learned from that harnessing or that portal or what memories or observations do you take from that space of intentional gathering? I've also seen in many other spaces be informally dedicated or centered around his legacy and memory and so if you have any of that as well you can bring that but wanting to start with the the intentional spaces that have been been cultivated yeah i just want to add the context that uh, malik transitioned in fox lake um, which is a part of the chain of lakes um, which is uh, a little community about an hour and 20 minutes north of Chicago. Um, and the cottages on Petite Lake was a space that we had visited three times. The first time being in September 2020 for Damon's birthday. Um, and then again in July of 2021 to celebrate my first episode of television. And then Malik decided that he wanted to bring his mother there for her 50th birthday. And so that trip um, was his mother's 50th birthday celebration. You know, he brought his family out. So his mom, his dad, his brother, his sister, me, him, Yari, and Ori. Uh, And so he and I had a different connection to that space that was beyond the tragedy. Uh, And that was what undergirded my intention in returning there. And what I did there was, you know, a series of events that I called Ascension to mark his ancestral anniversary that started with um, a three-day retreat, the centerpiece of which was a collective grief and healing retreat that offered guided meditation, grief counseling, art therapy, body work, Reiki, catered meals, um, and then culminated in a boat ride on the boat that Malik captained on uh, our three trips prior um, and where the accident happened. And the, the culminating moment there for me was, you know, in one of our art making practices during the retreat, folks wrote letters, drew pictures, wrote prayers, wishes, affirmations to Malik, and then folded those pieces of paper into paper boats 
over to Iman with paper making. <laughs> Iman made this paper out of old poems. And to start our paper making process, she has asked us to write anything we want to release. And then we are going to use the things that we are releasing as the foundation for the new paper that we're going to make. Did awesome. I explain that right? Yes, <laughs> lovely. And to add it to this water, and I'll also make mention of another offering piece. Um, I've collected a cup of water from the lake, um, so I would also like to add this water. Yes. You know, at the spot that Ori and Malik went in the water, Ori and I got back in the water, cast out that fleet of paper boats of folded prayers. Um, and then, somewhat unexpectedly, I felt really compelled to jump in and go for a swim. Um, so just as, you know, we're talking about the event, I just wanted to sort of lay the the foundation of what it was and, um, and the visual of, like, uh, what folks were invited into for that weekend. The three days at the cabins um, on the anniversary of Malik's transition was such a special time. I'm not sure what I expected. It wasn't what I expected, but it kind of was. To me, it was very peaceful. I felt peaceful that whole weekend. People had an opportunity to share what they were going through with it, how they were feeling the grief and how his actual passing had affected them. But it was shared. No one was in it alone. There was a sound bath that was amazing. And in the background, of that sound bath was the lapping of the water in the lake as background to it. And being up there and hearing the water and watching the water to me is very, very peaceful. And when I'm there, I'm always like, okay, Malik, what are you gonna tell me? And he doesn't tell me shit. <laughs> I wait for it, but I, I do experience him there. And peaceful is what I can say. I mean, for some people, I know they have told me I never want to be there again. And I guess I can understand that, but to me, being there Again, I'm going to use the word peaceful. I'm being so redundant, but it's relaxing. It's calm. It's and I would say free. that that is what Malik is saying to you. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, I I will tell you this. You may think I'm totally bizarre, but when we were there during that six days, we were there when it happened. There was a specific cloud formation. I saw. I'm like, oh my god. I saw that cloud, same, a similar cloud formation when I was there recently by myself. I had taken a long weekend and gone, mm. and I saw that same cloud formation, and it was like, oh, wow, it's the same. 
And then things got kind of wispy and moving away. And I'm like, okay, I know that was you. I know that was you. And I expect that the next time I go, I will see something similar. Yeah. The spaces that have been created in Malik's honor have been really healing um, and powerful opportunities of reflection and opportunities to really confront, especially if we are hiding or doing mm-hmm. what we can to hide. Yeah. And like, and some of us are not in positions to hide. Like speaking to Christiana, like there is no way that Christiana can hide or run from mm-hmm. what happened that day. And so mm-hmm. I feel like Christiana is very much a portal of healing and of just like create space and it was an honor to be at Fox Lake with everyone. I was also like just nervous. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't even know how I was going to be. You know like how I was mm-hmm. how physically I was going mm-hmm. to react to the you know what I'm saying? But honestly, it was like as soon as we walked in it was all love and mm-hmm. like you know, we were welcome with, you know, again like the sound bath and the the good food. It was like there was endless space. That's what it felt like. Like there was like endless space. I pray that more spaces are created or that the spaces that have been created for Malik become like a model Mm. for other types of grieving spaces, whether it is the activities that occur within the space and the rituals that are called um, through ancestral practices, all the way to just like the acknowledgement of like, like what feels like the elephant in the room. You know what I'm saying? Like how people don't really want to talk about grief. You know, even people will name like, oh, like even naming the person, like, oh, we miss them. But there's not always like intentional, deliberate spaces created for people to just process Mm -hmm. and confront and be held and like remember. Because I think there's a lot of remembrance. There's a lot like... When you're grieving, for me humbly, the, I, I've been in places where I've forgotten memories. Like I'm just like, and I'm mm-hmm. fighting for the memories. I'm like, mm-hmm. I want to, you know what I'm saying? But like, it's almost as if it's like a blank. Mm-hmm. And 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 um, mm-hmm. what I love and appreciate about these spaces, it's like it gives you oxygen to remember, mm-hmm. and it it gives you oxygen to like. To honor that human, that spirit. So I thank you. I thank you for that. I thank this tribe, this village. I feel like y'all's family has such an interesting, beautiful, like interconnected practice already. And one that I does, I like, you know what I'm saying? As much as I love and appreciate my family, I just don't know that we know how to do that. And so to see y'all this the interconnectedness, the dinners that you're just, you know, that you, because y'all do that. Y'all have like, is it weekly dinner? Y'all all come together at the dinner table? We, we try. We, there's seasons that go up and right. down. Okay. It's, it's there. But like, <laughs> that's not something that we, we do. And, 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 I, and I don't know what that's about or, uh, but I do know that uh, I learn a lot from the model, y'all's existence mm-hmm. and from the models that you create. I feel like mm-hmm. a very grateful especially for these uh, tributes to Malik, this space for remembrance of Malik. Well, let me say 
that I am very happy that when you were saying this family thing you do, that you looked at Christiana and Damon and you looked at me and included <laughs> me in that. Um, because I am part of that and have been for a very, very long time. Like 40 years. Like 40 <laughs> years, yeah. Before there was a Christiana. Um, I will say, though, that Christiana and Damon have created a community that wrapped us all up in love and strength and support. And that is something that was intentional that they did over time. They have supported others in many ways and that all came back to them so freely and graciously. I mean, Christiana didn't have to worry about making a meal for six months and that's huge. And who else can say that? I mean, who does that, you know? People don't really do that anymore. And um, there were other needs that were met, very, some very quietly. I mean, to help her process, even just in her body to process things that you wouldn't imagine that people contributed, made, offered. And that was because of the community that Christiana and Damon and Jennifer and Malik built around them. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. I wanted to comment on how, so through the culmination of, this will be the fifth event, right? Well, one, so Christiana means a lot to me. She's one of my very close friends and She's very much like my sister, and I'm very thankful for her. And Malika is very important to me as well. And I just want to say each of the events really, to me, speaks to, like, their love and, like, the energy that y'all share. And to see that and to feel it, like, in each event, to see how, like, you can bring that out, I thought was, like, it's not just, like, beautiful. It's, like, remarkable, really, really through every event, but especially at the cabin, I think really spoke to like Malik's energy, but also speaks to yours. So I just like want to comment on that and how much you've given to all of us really through all of this. I think also I will say all of this to me has shown me that like grief can be whatever you want it to be in the best ways. And it can be like a celebration hmm. and you can keep celebrating it. And I think that's something that I hope that we all learn from like through through with Malik, through other people that we love and care about. I hope that we get to like continuously celebrate them because I feel like a lot of the times, like you said earlier, like like sometimes we do it for like a year or two and then it fizzles, you know? But I feel like there's like so much power and so much love and connection in the continuation of this. And I feel like it's it's like provided like a lifeline in a way. Each time I go, it's like I when I went to Mexico, I did this thing called a temes temescal, right? Temescal. Temescal. And it's a um, like a steam in a cave for like four hours. It's this ancestral rebirthing experience. Um, and in a way, it's kind of like, I mean, not as intense, but it's kind of like how I feel when I leave each event. 
like I have gone through. Like, I take that as the highest compliment. Thank you. Yes, it's really. <laughs> it's like something spiritually that has been grown and birthed and transformed. It's nice to see that we can do that with each other, right? And like that we can continue that with each other. So much of our whole world, really human civilization, but definitely our our community and our work is centered around this balance between life and death, right? And so, you know, the space we're in is built out of a movement and in many ways that movement has gotten its various momentums to responding to high points of loss or transition. And even beyond like, you know, those flashpoints um, in our community these last few years, one in addition to Malik's transition, we've been in a global pandemic that has taken millions of people away from us. And there was certainly a, a, a devastation to um, the sudden transition we experienced with Malik. So we, we've been processing this time together and it's been a really impactful and big year or two. Um, and so as we go further in this conversation, I kind of want to zoom out and what has this time, these, these two years, these last 18 months or so, um, taught you about grief, healing, and community? It's such a big question, and I, I don't I don't have a, a specific answer, but I'm just going to start talking. Um, so I think, for one, um, it has taught me how little I knew about grief before yeah I just really days before Malik's transition um, I think shortly after Squeak's transition I was saying to myself like wow I'm 35 years old and death has never really touched me closely how much longer do I think this can go on um, just statistically speaking. And so I had that thought and, you know, and then it seemed like a very cruel answer from the universe. But I think inside of that, in my quest to transform, you know, s the most unimaginable tragedy of my life into something of light and beauty, really been thinking about grief as an intense expression of love and that the intensity of our grief um, is really, you know, equivalent to the intensity of our love and, and a monument to the love that we felt and that we feel. Um, and that's how I've been trying to work with it. People say that um, grief is love with nowhere to go. But I think that in our collective grief, we have been finding ways to express the love that we have. It isn't that Malik is gone so that love goes nowhere. I think we find new ways to express it and put it out in the world. 
instead of it just disappearing because it can't disappear. It transforms, I think, into something else that Malik himself helps shape in some ways by our honoring him with that. I would say, usually I expect grief to break me down and I feel like this time it broke me open. And I feel like I've honestly been like refilled in a lot of ways. Mm. I think I feel like I've lived with grief a lot of my life, but not like this. This is a different type of grief. I feel like it's shown me like transformation has been on my mind a lot. Like um, instead of cutting things, like what does it look like if you if you transform them? Yeah, grieving Malik specifically and the collective loss that we've all been through these past two years. Hmm. I think it's really made me love everyone deeper. I think it's made me realize like what we have here in the present. And I think it's also made me realize like love is not like one dimensional. Mm-hmm. So it like, I've, I feel like we feel his spirit everywhere, you know, and that's been like the most amazing thing because it's, you really feel him and you know he's here and like here right now. And I think that's offered like an amount of comfort that I didn't expect and I really didn't have words for, but yeah, it keeps coming. So I'm thankful for it. When these three words come together, what came to my mind is like, what does the world allow us to have space for, right? And two things can exist at the same time, right? Like grief can be healing, right? Or you can belong to a community for a myriad of reasons, you know, uh, diaspora, ethnicity, race, et cetera, et cetera, um, but still not feel held by that community, right? to the original point about what the world is allowing us to have space for. Like, I don't have space to grieve my own shit um, because I'm helping somebody with their grievances or I'm helping, you know, my mother with her healing and understanding that the world didn't create that space for her to have healing originally. So with me putting, like, you know, my needs or, you know, the hurt that I'm feeling or not being able to articulate, putting that back to create more space for those who didn't have access to, like, the idea that these things can work at the same time Um, and allowing my art to be ready to motivate and to speak on that, being on a creative hiatus to allow myself to be in these different bubbles is where I've kind of come to over the past two years. Uh, The past uh, one to two years have been uh, really challenging for me. as Malik was the third death of the week for me, and the 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 loss of Malik was just like it's all wrapped up in everything else, and all of their funerals were on the same day, and so I, it was like a moment of intense growth and responsibility, but um, also it taught me about the power of interconnectedness and how like it's really like the little things. That matter the most, and I think like between then and now, like there I've been like a pendulum, like feeling crazy sometimes. I'd hate to use that word, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, 
but then also feeling like really deeply affirmed and like open if that makes sense uh we buried my big mama on october 7th and i feel like that was like a full circle of like okay but she was 98 years old so it's like laying her to rest looked very different but even then right i think connecting that moment to like connecting that moment to everything that has occurred um just again being reminded and affirmed in the importance of just like the interconnectedness and the little things um and how we must be like we have to exist i want to build off that for our next go around but you know i think especially within the first season or so for me it really taught me so much about the world and the needs that are going unmet or the the absence of support and structure as just a human being as a as a black man in chicago like i i i did have an understanding of death and you know new people growing up or in neighborhoods, the idea, particularly in relation to violence, of the jarring nature of folks not being here with us anymore. Um, but that understanding of death did not reach an understanding of grief. The best lesson I had of grief and grief work and grief in community was through Dorothy Holmes around Ronnie Man and the way in which she was both very vulnerable and transparent, but also very much activated. And, you know, doing those anniversaries every year and seeing that there's not a difference substantially between year two and year five, right? Or year three and year six, right? Like it is. And so as this was happening, I found myself thinking about Dorothy and their family a lot. Um, But what, what it taught me in terms of the absence is because it it was just an accident. So much of the death that I was able to comprehend had a target, Uh, but not having an external oppressive target or not even having like the distinction between an accident and violence. It was like, oh, you know, now we gotta clean the streets up or Mm -hmm. look at what the system does to us or look at the way in which we're in conflict or, there was something that could have been stopped or prevented. But seeing the way that life is just precious and vulnerable, it just woke me up to, there are millions of families that are in space, but there is not the same type of community sphere that we have built for each other that can really process when there is no target, when there is no external, it's just something that we are holding. And so, you know, everybody has community in the sense of like relationships and support systems. And so seeing us, holding and having to commemorate something that we can't then put a finger on or immediately activate from. Now I'm just starting to even calculate like, oh, it's not just struggle or Mm -hmm. people might be going through poverty or conflict or trauma at large, right? Like that how this is specifically coding thousands and millions of people's like day-to-day, minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour life, Mm -hmm. and there's not a vocabulary for it. Mm -hmm. And so I always use the metaphor of, like, the sound catching up to the plane when it's landing, just, like, 
there's so much sound that I now hear that people have been holding that I think has taught me. Yeah, I think uh, you kind of brought home what I was um, reaching for when I said it taught me how much I didn't know Mm -hmm. about grief. Um, Because as you've mentioned, like the existence of the Let Us Breathe Collective is responding to public grief around Mike Brown. And then there are all these other deaths Laquan McDonald, Pierre Lowry, you know, all these other deaths that we find ourselves responding to, Rakia Boyd, that propel our organizing and movement work forward and being touched deeply, closely, intimately by death um, was, yeah, a huge wake-up call that, like, in all of the, the activity that we have generated in the past seven years in response to death, um, has any of it touched the places that need to be touched, um, you know, the ones that I'm feeling right now? Um, because we've done so much organizing and built so so many systems and infrastructure, and none of them are <laughs> reaching me. <laughs> um, and so, like, what is the thing? And, you, you know, you kind of said there are no words or, you know, the, the systems don't exist. And I think what I've been trying to study uh, and build and reach for is that there is language for it and the systems do exist, just maybe not in our Western American capitalist culture that really depends on us being disconnected from our rituals mm-hmm. and not allowing the space for grief at the individual level or the collective level. Um, And so what are the interventions that we can create and what is the wealth of ancient knowledge that we can draw on to bring those things back into our daily lives and practices and abilities to compost in order to fertilize? Yeah. In this time, in this season, whether it's directly related to Malik or to the collective loss that we've experienced, even if you haven't been able to actualize it or manifest it, has there been any sparks for you of like, oh, I need to live more. Oh, this is more precious. None of this is promised. How has that crystallized for for any of us? Hmm. When I was younger, I always thought 25 was like old. I now see how young 25 is. For me, like seeing Malik and knowing that, you know, he spiritually will reach 30, but he did not physically reach 30, and seeing how young 30 is, and also knowing him, like him being my friend and seeing him live his life so intentionally with his family and with his loved ones, it made me see how he lived such a full life, though, right? before 30 or whatever age that really means. And I'm thankful for the life that I've lived. I've done a lot of traveling this year as well, and I think, thankfully, but I also think, like, it's taught me to, like, go on the adventure of life. Like, you can't be scared to, like, do things and to try things and to build the dreams like you want to have because you don't know, like Trina said. And I think we always think that we feel like we have enough time. We... And I feel like you do have enough time, but it may not just be uh, in the ways that you think it will. Mm. So I feel like it's a lot of like, do it now. And I'm grateful for that. I needed that jump start, if I'm honest. 
I would say that I definitely have been called to dream bigger. The time of Malik's death, my mom was facing homelessness. So that had put me on like a different type of clock. My life has been generally circulated around my mom's clock. My mom being a woman who deals with alcoholism, who also deals with a lot of like buried hurt and trauma. I've always wanted to succeed before my mom passed away. Um, just to close, say I've, I'm just called to dream bigger and be in a place to track and log gratefulness for all I have mm -hmm. accomplished and realizing that I feel bountiful now mm -hmm. in dream and got to dream a lot harder, a lot bigger, but still be rooted in something different than like surviving, right? So I'm not making art out of a time sense, right? I'm not making art from the defense line. I'm not making art out of um, using my talent out of a sense of obligation, right? So now I'm in a place of seeking artistry out of peace, which is all in all myself, and what dreams can be manifested and flourished from that place. It makes me realize the immediacy of life, that we don't want to wait to tell people how we feel what they mean to us. To go to the botanical garden, to go to the museum. Oh, I'll do that when someone visits, just do the thing. But especially to allow ourselves to share ourselves with others and share our life instead of being with our heads down, pushing, 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 and not noticing what's around us because we got to get to that goal that's up there and we're not noticing what we're passing on the way because the journey is very often as important, if not more important than the achievement at the end. And tell people we love them, say thank you and what you're thanking them for, for small things, you know, instead of taking life around us for granted. I cannot lie, y'all. I was lashing out at first. I was wilding. And there are still some times where I still, you know, just be like, I don't give up. Excuse my, you know what I'm saying? I was like, fuck it. I would even say that there were times, even on my, like, me just being in the house and kind of, like, hibernating and cocooning at some points is really rooted in me being like, like, I don't know how I'm going to be when I interact with other people like I don't even know what version of myself is going to come out and like if I go outside today like how am I going to be and I feel like I was doing this thing of like how am I going to be uh, a lot like what does it mean to be as time like passed um, I began to be able to identify the outlets that made the most sense for me and then coming to a place of like I am completely fine with the world knowing my range of existence and like I'm just not going to censor myself to make other people feel good about their decisions like over time with like stillness and self-care practices and rituals and just staying open I've been able to better understand myself because I I don't know that I really understood myself and I did know myself before obviously but I do think that this piece of like really feeling that tomorrow is really not promised and like what it means to exist and how I want to exist deliberately.
you know, I mentioned the adventures that we took the kids on in the weeks before. Um, and, you know, neither of us necessarily consciously knew what was coming, but like we were really cramming it in the me, him, Yari, Ori adventures. And so that's just in the weeks leading up, but our entire relationship was, was that spirit. You know, there was nothing that I felt like we didn't do or that in our relationship I felt was unsaid. You know, there was um, such intentionality around moving through conflict, showing each other love and not just in a romantic sense, but really like holding context for the other to uh, reach their fullest potential, um, that kind of love, that when he transitioned, I knew that what I needed to do is like harness all of that internally in a really rigorous, intentional way in order to not be destroyed by it. Um, that if I'm to be Ori's mother and be his last remaining parent on the physical plane, um, that I could not be suicidal, that I could not allow myself to be destroyed by grief, and that I had to focus all of that love um, and all of that intentionality and spirit of adventure and joy and pleasure and beauty making into being really well within myself so that Ori could have a healthy mother on the earth plane. You know, I am still and will always be uh, deeply connected to Malik. And so how I am living my life um, is to be a portal of his love, his energy, um, his light, and shining that out. I want us to like kind of do a little exercise of taking our memory of where we are now, being 16 months out, and projecting into the future when they're about like 13. You know, and a, a little bit more articulate, a little bit more conscious of the world around them, and a little bit more removed from their father's transition. What would you, as his community or parts of his community, want 13-year-old Yari and Ori to know about their father? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go. I thought of, as we were talking about memories at the beginning, I thought of my first memory of Malik, which was on my birthday in 2018 in July, and I was meeting Christiana and Malik for lunch. And I had just found out, had I found out before, I did know before, because they came into this little restaurant. She was good and pregnant by July. <laughs> uh, they came into this little restaurant and I was there and they came in, they had just come from the doctor and they came in giggling and laughing and Malik was like hunched over laughing and I thought, oh my God, they can't be parents. <laughs> I'm serious. And then I, I was like, oh my God, they're just, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Um, we birthed a silly boy. Yes. So <laughs> but. The silliest. <laughs> then watching Malik be a father, you know, the best daddy ever. His kids were his priority. He took care of them in so many ways. 
I would see his tenderness with them. And I would hear him when they were taking a bath say, you have got to be kidding me. Have you lost your mind when the water went flying all over? Um, to taking Ori to buy a bicycle and coming home with a little blue motorcycle. Well, that's the one he wanted. <laughs> and he still rides that little blue motorcycle. But he just is such a wonderful dad and parented them both so well. And with Yari going between two households, you know, that was different than with Ori, who was always there. But Malik always let her know that he was there for her, no matter which house she was in, no matter what was going on. You have access to me all the time. And yeah, from that first meeting when I was like, aghast and then watching the reality of fatherhood for him was an amazing thing his vision how he made fatherhood be is something i think that more men should aspire to well okay so like to future ori and, and yari <laughs> I always think about how he used to say how, like, he didn't want y'all to be assholes. Like, <laughs> clear as day. Like, he was like, I don't want you to, I don't want them to be assholes. I'd be like, okay. That's like our only, like, parenting philosophy is don't raise assholes. Literally. <laughs> and, like, 13 is such an age where you oh. have to, like, yeah, do an asshole, asshole audit. Age. You know? Yeah. Like, that's, that's so don't be an there. asshole, okay? I'm going to say that now. <laughs> Your daddy would want you to not. <laughs> yes, he would. He would say it just like that too and I just think my favorite thing about him was the kind of dad he was like it made him an even more amazing person so I want y'all to hopefully like live in that you know and always live in that and you can always live in that I think I think a lot about too like all the food he like made for you guys yep. and I think about like the bread that he baked <laughs> Because he was honestly, like, the best baker I knew. And it really shocked me. I was like, how do you know how to do this? Like, fresh bread, y'all. So I hope that, like, you know, I hope that you pick up on things that, like, he did that you can, like, carry with you. And I hope that you get to be, like, your fullest selves. And I know you will be because of your moms and, like, your family around you. But I just want to say I love you both very much for the future. <laughs> And I'm really excited to see what two Capricorns can do. <laughs> Man, uh, <laughs> I'm really excited to see to see that. But I think that, yeah, I think that, like, I hope that y'all always carry his silliness and his insightfulness and the care that he had. And also his ability to be like, that doesn't matter. You know, like, he was really good at seeing, like, what matters and what doesn't matter. And really more so, like, going after what mattered to him. And I hope that y'all can do that. Because I feel like he was so good at that. And he didn't really care what the world thought. And I feel like at 13, you're going to need that. I need it at 28. So. Y'all's daddy was a fierce, free spirit man. He was like a lion. That's how, like, if there was any animal, I I would think he's just very much like, he practiced a lot of patience. 
in his life. And I pray that y'all keep patience with you. I pray that, yeah, that freedom and that free spiritedness like remains in y'all's hearts. And and remember to love on each other. Um, mm-hmm. Malik, if you ever needed him to show up, he was going to show up mm-hmm. to move things or to have good conversation. Um, and so I just encourage y'all to practice all of those quality characteristics of your father. And I'm sure you're going to know all of, you know, nobody is perfect. Like no human is perfect and like learn all of the pieces of him Mm -hmm. um, and accept him and learn about yourselves by way of that. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would say that by the grace of the day that when you have questions about who this wonderful man was that gave you life, that you look to your mother. Being very young and losing a father, a parent, is no joke. And I want to give grace and praise to Christiana. And you have somebody who you can ask so many questions to, who can tell you so many stories, all the love stories, the adventures, how you're supposed to be treated, everything that the world has to offer you. You have it in your mother. And it's so beautiful to see and to witness. And I thank you Christiana, because the love that you give your children is like a world that like I, I imagine that I could live in. And I know that's what my parents would have wanted for me, and they didn't have that. But y'all, y'all have that. If you need a, a poetry workshop. <laughs> <laughs> a music songwriting uh, workshop, I'm here. Get it there. I'm here, but you are, you are, you are loved. You are so loved. Thank you, Iman. I love you. I love you. You know, I I mentioned earlier that I felt like one of the great gifts inside of the grief was not having regrets. And I think the exception to that is like feeling like Yari and Ori were so young that they might not remember like the physical presence of their dad. That they can see all of the monuments that we've built, but really, really wishing for them that they could hold on to the immense physical presence that he gave them in the years that he was here for their lives. Malik was the the baby carrier of the two of us. You know, he was always the one with the infant strapped to his body. Um, so not just the emotional care and presence and like resources that we expect of a father, but physical closeness, a different kind of domestic care and presence. And I think we're used to seeing 
of fathers. And I don't know like what the, the brain memory science is behind like how the two-year-old and the four-year-old can like remember what it felt like to be physically held by their father and just like how physically present he was in their lives. Um, but that is like a deep wish and prayer for them. Um, just like thinking about Malik's physical absence, not from a deficit place, but from an abundance place. That is uh, something that I hope in their teen years that both Yari and Ori are able to, um, through our example and um, practice, able to access that relationship with ease. Um, and then, you know, I think the last little nugget is Malik is the, I don't know if originator uh, you would say is historically correct, but, you know, I would say definitely the proliferator of WellPro. He created the term. So wellness and protection was a cipher and he made the like, and then was passionately the embodier of the cipher. Right. Um, and so, you know, in our study of abolition and how to be in community with each other, um, we have moved away from the idea of security and towards the idea of wellness and protection. Um, so if we're at an event, we're not going to hire a security guard, but we are going to have stewards who are carrying the intention of wellness and protection in that space. Um, and Malik was absolutely that person uh, in the Let Us Breathe Collective. And yes, you know, then shortened that uh, to WellPro. And so now, you know, like th that summer in that like fever dream of just like hanging with the kids a whole bunch uh, before August 20th that I had them out on Lake Michigan, you know, like, I don't know if it was scooter or bicycle or what, but you know, we were out on the trail and I explained to them like daddy's concept of well pro and for each other, how they could be good well pro stewards of one another, you know, as we're like, if your brother falls, like go back and check on him, make sure he's okay. And so now it's like, I can just say the word well pro and they look for each other. And I would want 13 year old Yari and Ori to hold on to that practice, deepen that practice and expand that practice into their communities. I think of a, a, a few parts of, of his personality that really shined was really curious, passionate, and active and activated. And so was always hungry for information or stories or new histories or cool songs or cool podcasts or cool documentaries. Things didn't have to be big or necessarily popular, but he, he really nurtured and embraced his own curiosity he was deeply passionate like he didn't half-ass things or wasn't ambivalent um you know we're right now in this room with these microphones and i think that's something that we really shared is that you know we both had you know movement facing podcasts working to document the space and we collaborated and we're you know planning to do a lot more collaboration and something that i knew and said at the time 
and say much more just how much more passionate he was about his crafts about this tool about you know teaching himself how to be his own engineer and his own producer and then his own host that is one example or one very forefront embodiment of he was just deeply passionate We continue the conversation with Bill Ayers, longtime movement participant, organizer, and educator, and host of Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom, a podcast that Malik helped build as a producer. Hi, it's Bill Ayers. Good to be with you, Damon. And it's great to be up here at the lake remembering Malik. You know, how are you? What are you experiencing? What, what are you feeling right now in this moment, being in this space? You know, the exciting thing has been to not let this anniversary go by without noticing. Attribute that to the family, to Christiana, to you, uh, to, to all the close comrades and family. You hear that noise in the background? That's Ori. Um, that's him being full Ori. Um, hi. Anyway, um, you know, I think, I think it's important to mark this. And one of the things that I'm feeling is not only a deep remembrance of our comrade and brother, but remembering the ways in which he inspired us. And for me, I was trying to start this little podcast because you and Daniel had me on your podcast and I didn't know what a podcast was. And then the more I asked, the more interesting it became. And at some point, we got serious about starting a podcast and I said, I need all kinds of help. Who could help me? And you recommended Malik Alim. I knew Malik from the movement. I'd seen him at meetings. We'd said hello, but I didn't know what it was like to work together. So we began to work together. And it took about two months for me to realize that he was bringing me wisdom, ambition. You know, and when I say ambition, Malik's not the guy who had career ambition. His ambition was all political, emotional, it was ethical ambition. It was intellectual ambition. He wanted to know more. One other thing, I wanted to do our podcast twice a month. And we were talking about it after we'd done it maybe for a month or two. And he looked at me and he shook his head and he said, no, man, not once a month, once a week. <laughs> I said, can we do that? I don't know if I have the time, the energy. He said, we have to. We have to get people listening because what we're saying is important. And that's the kind of ambition I mean. He pushed me all the time to take it further. And by a few months in, we were actually partners and I couldn't really do it without him. The guy was curious to a fault. And so I'm here with his family and many of his close comrades and I'm feeling Malik rising up. I'm feeling him in all of us. And what I said in the circle was that Malik was a builder. And one of the things we all should build is a house and the house Malik built is embodied here in you, in Christiana, in Ori, but also in all the comrades who gathered. I, when he passed, you know, Timmy Chow called me. I was in San Francisco, and Timmy was inconsolable, and I was inconsolable. And of course, we suspended the podcast because that was our work together. We've gotten back to it now. But getting back to it, we always say in every episode, we're gathered in the spirit 
in the being of Malik Alim. And that's how we feel. In fact, I've kept a couple of his phrases that he used to always say on the podcast. Um, he always, used to always welcome and he used to always sign off. I've kept those on because I don't want to lose him. Um, he was just too important to what we were trying to do. And again, beyond a little backdoor podcast, what we were trying to do was contribute to the movement. And Malik's every fiber was bent towards collective advancement for humanity, for all of us. I loved him so much, and I see him in you. I see him in Christiana. It's an honor to to reflect with you, Bill. I think, you know, y'all's collaboration and your work relationship and life relationship was so activating for him. And you could see and hear him naming feeling realized and feeling placed. And so helping to make that connection is one of the greatest prides that I have. So I got a question for you. How did you even imagine that he and I could click? I mean, I didn't imagine it when we started. Uh, And we really did click. I mean, we crossed age and race and ethnicity and all these things. But we somehow were seeing the world through a common lens. And that was very, very energizing for me. So my, my first facetious tongue-in-cheek answer is nepotism. I <laughs> just want my, my brother-in-law to be placed and, like, yeah. prioritized. But, the, you know, the I truer... You know, I didn't even know he was I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> forgot to tell me that. <laughs> just, a, just a, you know, a, a, an objective suggestion. Yeah. Uh, but all jokes aside, wanting someone who didn't just know how to work the knobs or put on a filter, yeah. it was two things that I felt your show needed that that he had more than me and so one is like a dedication because the show that he had built and his work and so much of the time it was him doing it by himself so he could understand the, the entire workflow of the process so i feel fortunate of having such a great collaboration and being able to create an entity at a time that it was able to grow into something that people respect there was ways in which i know he admired us and ergo and what we have but me personally i had such a deep respect and admiration of even though i may be air quote further ahead in terms of what public recognition looks like in this space i knew he had a deeper dedication and passion to this form and to this medium and would you know initiate that independently Um, and the void is still deeply felt as we're trying to build things with other folks. He was the only person that had both of that. I can trust that he'll take this seriously and he will put his all into it and that he cares about this. It's not just a, a, a trade that he's trying to you know, come up on. There's something that really means a lot to him and he's in it for the long haul. Um, but then also the, the content of your life, <laughs> but also your show is something that I knew he was in the legacy of and working to continue and expand. Um, and so I didn't know that y'all on a personality level would click and, and be so magnetic, but that's also him of he's that type of, of loving buddy that you know everybody can find and relate to. Yeah, no, there's no question about it. And you say a couple things that resonate with me. One is, it was that feeling, I don't want to let him down. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to let him down. So he, I, I was busy. I had, teaching commitments and personal commitments and he'd say no we got to have a show next Wednesday you know so he would do that and and he was very smart about it and and very strategic about pushing me but you also say he 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 didn't really do it as a craft or a career no he really saw that the work could help 
with the larger work that we care about. So he was a guy willing to, to open his eyes to the world, not once, not twice, but every day. And he was passionate about the world and his passion was contagious and he'd be excited about almost everything. I remember the one show that really was a corner turner for us was I had done an interview with, uh, with someone who's very large in the Haitian solidarity community in the United States. And the interview was raggedy. And Malik took it and he studied Haiti. He got into the interview, he took it apart, put it back together with commentary from him that made the, the interview coherent. Mm -hmm. That's what I was looking forward to, mm -hmm. was that he would bring that passion, that curiosity, that intellectual ambition to every show. And I am just eternally grateful to him and I will never, ever lose the power that he brought to me. I learned from him. He gave me courage in ways that were surprising, taught me things. But one of the things he taught me was I never met with him. They didn't say, what else should I read? Mm -hmm. I mean, what a great trait, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to be able to say, I'm always learning. I want to learn more. So even though he was opening his eyes to the world, being astonished at what was possible, but also never settling that he had it figured out. That's really important if you're going to be in the movement for the long haul. Mm -hmm. If you think you know everything, you become one of those orthodox communists who drives us all <laughs> nuts. You know, you want to be one of these vivid, lively, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the kind of the kind of anarcho-communist who believes in people and isn't fighting the stupid points of ideology, but trying to figure things out while you do it. And that was Malik figuring things out all the time with his feet on the ground and his hands in motion. Man, the guy was, uh, was special in all kinds of ways. I miss him horribly. The events are the large public facing ways um, that I've tried to use creativity to <laughs> transform, you know, immense sadness um, and pain. But they are, I think, emblematic of what I am striving to do in my daily personal practice of altar work and ancestor reverence in the way that I'm able to say that I am still in relationship with Malik and will be in eternal relationship with Malik and not in some like abstract way, but in really close, intimate, tangible ways. Like I know that I am not alone. I know that Malik has not left or gone anywhere. That is really in part thanks to ritualizing relationship with him uh, and ancestors not being some abstract amalgam of ancient beings that I never met, but, you know, an anchor for personal relationship with the unseen. At its core, like what I'm hoping people can take a kernel of from these events. So, you know, just like tangibly in the hopes that like you will find a space in your home or in your life or in your practice to develop that personal relationship because it has given me such solace in what would otherwise be so painful.
And I know that people are still feeling immense pain uh, from his physical absence. Um, and I hope that in taking some of these nuggets of practice and praxis and personal relationship with, you know, some of that pain can be eased in the way that I have uh, been able to experience. We thank you for joining us and communing with the beautiful spirit that is Malika Lean. I'm Damon Williams, and this piece was produced by Jeanette Harris Quartz.